0: Welcome to Illumination by Modern Campus, the leading podcast focused on transformation and change in the higher education space. On today's episode, we speak with Matthew Gunkel, who is CIO at the University of California, Riverside. Matthew and podcast co-founder, Armada Walia, discuss the introduction of generative AI in higher ed and the need for a digital first approach to shaping the future of student learning.
1: Well, Matt, welcome to the Illumination podcast. It's great to be chatting with you. Wonderful. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. Well, you uh, you did a, a fantastic presentation at last year's EDUCAUSE conference um, talking a little bit about generative AI and its, its progression and its introduction to the post-secondary space. And I think any conversation with, about generative AI needs to start off with a little bit of debunking. So I'm hoping we can kick off just by talking a little bit about what is generative AI and what isn't it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a really interesting question, right? When uh, when we begin to kind of consider uh, AI as just sort of this broad field, uh, and then the the different types of uh, you know machine learning or artificial intelligence or just these different things and concepts around large language models, and right, of course, large language models are a very specific uh, you know modality with regards to AI, and so uh, you know, I think when you consider that, right? I mean uh, universities are broadly engaged in large science endeavors. And so in that regard, right we're looking at lots of different concepts uh, you know for applied uh, ways in which you know we can use different data mechanisms for essentially uh, portions of, of artificial intelligence. And so, um, you know, this is where like this multimodal uh, concept starts to come into play, and um, you know, so so for me, right, I think large language models are like the sexy new thing uh, that are on the market. It's the thing that's making the news cycle. Uh, but you know, ultimately, we've had long-term engagement with uh, you know lots of these different kinds of technologies. Um, this is just the one that's now starting to have an emerging impact. Uh, not only in sort of what we're hearing about, but also uh, in, in everyday work or our lives that, that people are taking on.
1: Well, that's, you know, I think what's so interesting about generative AI is truly the confusion that surrounds it. I think there's um a lot of fascination with tools that can do what people feel they're designed to do in the first place. Um, but, you know, getting to that concept of the misconceptions, this is where I think, people might be getting confused about what the technology can actually do I and mean, what are some of the most common misconceptions you've bumped into when you're faced when you're when you're in a conversation with someone on campus about generative AI and 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 the impact it can have
2: yeah i think there's this um concept of automation that that doesn't fully come to life right so uh when you're in there and you're now like using this like prompt engineering or like you're you know watching these people on tiktok and they're like well if you just ask it xyz you'll now get the magical result you were looking for um you know and then uh, you know i was talking with an associate provost just the other day and he was doing some statistical analysis and he was like he keeps giving me the wrong answer And so finally we actually reversed it. We sort of said, hey, here's what we're trying to do, actually write us a prompt for how we would ask you to correctly solve this problem. But it like, it elicits the challenge, right? Which is just that, um, you know, the things that these generate can be very interesting, uh, but they're not often correct, uh, or you're now trying to balance the correctness with application, right? So all too often, right, I'll hear these very high level generic responses, And then when we actually get into real work, we're like, like, that's a good start. Like, it helps me with my thinking, but it's not actually the applied answer that I'm now looking for or it lacks real depth. And so uh, this is where, you know, a lot of people, I think, are very hopeful that they're going to see automation around that depth piece and the application in, in their real work. Um, So like one one example for me, I've been recently just sort of looking at some strategic planning and, you know, I was sort of asking it some sort of deep questions on uh, emerging technology, including A.I. And, uh, you know, and again, it comes back with these really nice sort of high level answers and like you read them and then you're just kind of like, well, yeah, but when you push on it, uh, that response really doesn't fully stand up. And so, um, you know, and I think that's a big misconception, right? Or it's a a desire that we're seeing from people and they hear the hype and then they're like, and then they go and they use it and then they're like, yeah, but it didn't deliver. And, uh, you know, and I think that that's that's kind of one of the things that we're we're really seeing as a challenge Um, or they want more interconnectedness, right? So they want awareness. So a funny one, uh, the provost uh, here was actually uh, trying to use AI to write a poem about our chancellor. And, uh, you know, and ultimately, AI just didn't have the contextual awareness, and it couldn't sort of, it couldn't cobble together an understanding of who our chancellor was, even though there's lots of social media, there's lots of sort of content that could be pulled in, right? And so, again, it's the application. It wrote a poem. just wasn't very good. And so, <laughs> um, and, it, and it wasn't really contextually relevant about the chancellor. And so um, I think there's sort of that human and machine disconnect that still exists with the tools that we're seeing. Um, in some cases, you know, they're they're useful and they're valuable. I mean, you're you're wanting to check code, you're wanting to, um, you know, quickly, you know, ask some complicated response. Then you know it's useful. Um, But, uh, you know, as far as getting sort of full automation, like for instance, I really want it to like do things where it has awareness of my email and can actually like write prompts based on historical knowledge of conversations in email Mm -hmm. and provide responses that are useful where I can now quickly vet the response and send it versus having to sort of craft it all, you know, from from the beginning.
1: Well, it's, it's so interesting, right? I mean, this is where it starts to get into this question of, like technology versus magic, um, and that it's it's a an alignment piece that I think is really interesting because once we start to veer into magic, I think we maybe lose a little bit of sight as to you know what humans happen to be great at. Um, you know, I, I don't have the data point offhand, but there was uh, I think a McKinsey report that spoke to AI not necessarily replacing jobs. It was replacing paid work activities. So when you you kind of parse it to that extent, you say, well, if folks have, say, 30% of their day opened up, what more can they accomplish? What more can they really be uh, impactful around as opposed to doing things that are automatable? I'm, I'm curious, as you sort of look to your colleagues as you survey your own campus environment, what are some of the unique areas where generative AI is really capturing the imagination of your colleagues?
2: Yeah. I mean, so some of the things, um, you know, that we're, I mean, there are things that we're hopeful for, right. And so then we're trying to sort of figure out like, how do we, how do we apply AI to those things? Um, I've got some work in the school of medicine right now where, um, you know, we're really looking at how it can assist with uh, charting or, you know, making, making patient connections, right? So um, kind of the, you know, you hear five obscure data points. And then, of course, you know, a physician is always trying to triangulate. Well, then, like, what, what does that mean is wrong with you? And, of course, you know, an AI can then help with, well, here are other suggestions that physician might consider. Here's, uh, you know, medical research that might further back those up. Um, you know, especially if you're kind of in trying, um, you know, several different treatment options or plans. Um, you know, we're also just looking at how we can expedite, uh, you know, levels of patient care, right? Through, uh, you know, through that charting process, through the capturing of notes, through the sharing of information back to nurses, and um, you know, those kinds of things on on people's plans. Um, you know, I think those, I think some of those kinds of things, to your point, where you know, those are tasks that a computer can do well. Um, you know, I think I think we're going to see those continue to come to fruition quickly. You know, in the in the next six to nine months, um, you know, we're also actively working on things, um, you know, like advising. Um, you know, how can we begin to uh, tackle more complex uh, problems? Like, you know, how do we how do we assist all of the different nuance of all of our different students who are trying to work through, uh, you know, the bureaucracy of a of a university. Uh, navigate it and then actually, you know, craft a program for the kind of learning experience and outcomes that they want to have. And so, um, you know, that's where we're really excited about, um, you know, leveraging, um, you know, AI for advising because it can have awareness of schedules. It can have awareness of course outcomes. Uh, it can have an understanding then of who that student is. Um, And then how we actually might, uh, you know, ask them, you know, survey questions around, well, like, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? What do you want to be? And then how can we now customize and guide you down those paths in a much more nuanced fashion uh, while also then working to meet the mission of the institution, which is to, you know, graduate students, avoid student debt, um, you know, and do some of these sort of very administrative things uh, from an educational perspective.
1: That's so interesting. You One thing, before we get to hype, uh, I I do want to talk a little bit about hype. Um, You've sort of always been in, in the public institutional space. You were at Indiana. You went to Missouri System. Now you're at UC Riverside. Do you think that there's a unique sort of level of responsibility or a unique level of risk awareness that public university technology leaders in particular need to bear in mind when it comes to exploring the possibilities of technologies like, like, I mean, call it chat GPT specifically, but generative AI more generally?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, this is one of those where, you know, data is the uh, new commodity and it's the thing that's gonna, you know, continue to drive us and rule us, uh, you know, in into the future. And this is where, you know, when you look at um, historical privacy policies, and uh, and or you look through click through agreements, right? Where you know it's the thing that pops up for thirty seconds, and then you say yes, <laughs> uh, you know, it's yes, cool. company, you can have my life away, right? <laughs> uh, here's my here's my firstborn, and all these things. Um, you know, I think this is where, uh, you know, part of our responsibility is, uh, you know, educational institutions or really just institutions in general, um, is to help provide increased transparency for people around what are we doing, where where are you giving us data and information, and then how are we, uh, you know, effectively using it, um, you know, and or where do you have an opportunity to opt out or say, you know, please not that data, please don't, you know, use my information for for XYZ. Um, you know, and or where we can give people more control, um, you know, over over the portability of that information. So when they leave, they can take it with them and then they know that, you know, we're not using it, um, you know, and or that it's not going back and it's not uh, driving the development of models, um, you know, etc. And so, you know, I think for me, that's really a big responsibility that we have and is to increase this transparency and to work on simplifying that narrative for people. Um, so that way they can understand it because we are seeing abstraction of the technology, right? The technology is getting more advanced. Uh, I mean, you even have AI scientists who look at the AI and they go, I don't know how it got there. Right. Like I don't know how it learned a new language. And when they dig through the code, like it's, it's jargon, right? Like they can't follow it either. And so um, we are going to have this explainability factor that I think we have to continue to directly address, and, you know, we're seeing that in, you know, federal policy, state and local governments are looking at it. Um, but I think the, the more that we can do to help people understand the importance, uh, you know, of the data and their information, um, you know, we can really help them help help provide service to them in that in that regard uh, as the population at the, at the university that we're trying to help and support. Um, it can be part of the educational experience uh, as well. So, you know, which is which is interesting. But I think that's the big one, right? Because it's it's just, it's all about data and how we're leveraging and using data. It's not so much explicitly about the, um, you know, the large language model or the artificial intelligence piece that it might be being used in.
1: That makes sense. That makes sense. So getting, getting to hype cycle, and this is, again, it's a topic you brought up um, in, oh, geez, this was months ago, whatever town we were in for Educause. Um, and you talked a little bit about uh, the zone of disillusionment, and that's it's a term you used in, in this conversation as well. So as a campus technology leader, how can you sort of navigate waning interest and, you know, exhaustion that people will inevitably run into with this technology to ensure that its adoption still stays on track as, as a valuable tool or a valuable asset to the operation of the institution?
2: Yeah, so I think one of the big ones, uh, you know, first... Is, you know, is as people are kind of running up that hype cycle curve is uh, give them runway and ramp to do that, right? So trying to let them play with the tools, let them understand uh, where the value is because that's what everyone's looking for, right? When you're trying 10, 20, 30 tools or you're out Googling and you're trying to find the perfect resume builder or you know, your, whatever it is, right? Uh, you know, that, that the more that people can explore and uh, try things, um, and work with the tools uh, to see if it facilitates different use cases or scenarios, or if it actually alleviates that workload where they're looking to solve a really operational problem. Um, you know, that's sort, of, that's sort of one way. And then I think once, uh, once that sort of is underway, right, where this exploration is occurring, people are working through uh, trying new tools, um, it's then pulling together a community. And so this is one thing that we've really been doing Um, Heavily, uh, So UCR heavily leverages Slack. Um, I think you can do this at any chat platform, community platform, Um, but basically pulling together uh, the people who are spending the time uh, doing that analysis and then having a conversation around where they're deriving value. Where are they finding useful answers? It's really less about the specific piece of technology because you know as we're sort of seeing the expansion of all of these different tools, right? We're seeing you know however many hundreds a week or whatever we're still at. Um, we'll eventually then begin to see consolidation, right? So as we start to come back off that hype cycle, hype cycle, see the consolidation, um, you know, then I think it'll really, really flow back into then where were we seeing explicit value, and how then can we start to hone in on that piece. particular and then begin to move that forward uh you know in in our work and that can be you know with uh you know continued partnerships uh that can really be if somebody truly derives something very specific in the market space and we go ah that's it that one had value um and starting starting to get those uh starting to get those in place um you know on the it side it's also about uh building out the ability to integrate quickly. So again, as we're kind of trying and then people are saying like I found the value and then we're going great. Now I've got to get that integrated into, you know, service now or goal, like whatever the big, the big gnarly system is that, you know, we're either trying to replace, just replaced or, you know, have had for 30 years.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, one thing stepping back from generative AI Looking more broadly at the role and the the place of technology in the modern campus. I mean, you've seen over the past decade, decade and a half, technology playing a much larger role in the operation and administration of the post secondary institution. And that shift has really happened in concert with. A very distinct change in the way that students think of themselves and the way that consumers behave, right? Folks are becoming, have higher and higher expectations around technology as being part of their learner experience. Like you're seeing a greater intersection of of technology and physical space in terms of how folks want to interact with any service provider. So, from the perspective of the post secondary institution, how are you seeing the role of technology in general changing in the way that the institution offers a student experience that, that today's learners actually expect?
2: Yeah. You know, I think it's one of those where, you know, we're, we're now really seeing, um, you know, digital first as an expectation, Uh, you know, so, you know, in the, I don't know, the beginning of the, of the last sort of century, right? We've really seen uh, where people were just showing up with more technology, um, mm-hmm. but the expectation wasn't there. And we're now starting to really see a student population where they've lived with technology their entire lives. And now when they're coming, um, not only do they want to use the tech, but then they also now uh, are a little bit more self-aware around how they like to use it and their mm-hmm. preferences for engagement. And so uh, that's a shift, right? Um, And that's been sort of further amplified uh, as we went through COVID um, because people were then also forced to uh, self-consider, how do I want to engage? And so uh, that level of engagement and that awareness has, has now shifted and so... Um, we're kind of seeing this rebalancing, um, you know, with uh, how faculty are needing to consider the, that engagement with, with their student populations. Uh, and or we're seeing lots of students bringing lots of new technology into the classroom space on a regular basis that we're now having to be uh, responsive to, um, you know, or, or begin, beginning to take into consideration. We're even seeing that with AI, right? So, um, you know, as it's coming into the classroom, you know, it's not that you can't stand on historical pedagogical approaches. Definitely can, um, but you but you need to be prepared for students to be bringing new narratives, new ways of thinking, um, and you know, new tools to the conversation.
1: Well, to that end, I mean, how are you seeing the role of campus technology leaders evolving as? as technology in and of itself starts taking more front and center role in the way that learners and the way that stakeholders in general interact with the institution?
2: Yeah, I I think for, um, you know, the technology leaders, it's, um, you know, it's really facilitating the the microcosm of a university and, you know, and having platforms that people can operate, um, you know, these pieces of technology safely on. Um, you know, as you know, cybersecurity is an, is an ever-increasing threat uh, you know, for you know, various operations, universities are often targeted. And so, you know, we're working every day, right? To figure out not only how can we do all of this sort of breadth of different things that people wanna run on our networks and environments, but then how can we also do that um, you know, in, in, a, in a secure way? And so I think as we continue to see sort of more tools uh, you know, come on to the market. we're gonna we're gonna continue to see um, technical people needing to really build out um, you know improve knowledge around uh, really data and and how are you managing data and information and access uh, you know to that information where people are you know managing different workflows and filling out different forms. Um, you know we're seeing a number of changes just in how. Uh, you know, how like marketing and Google, right, are now collecting data and information and shifts there. And so, you know, it's similar in that regard because we have to be in a place where we can help uh, support all of, the, all of the academia and sort of what they're wanting to do from a teaching perspective, uh, but then also bringing in all of this technology that people want to leverage and use um, and or learn from because it, it, it is becoming more and more uh, a requirement for the learning experience.
1: Absolutely. Well, Matt, this is the phase of the interview that I warned you about, where, we, where we'll pivot from being a higher ed podcast to a food podcast. And uh, For those of you who, who don't have a sense of the geography of Southern California, uh, Riverside is about halfway between uh, Los Angeles, downtown LA, and Palm, Palm Springs. Matt, if someone's going to dinner in Riverside, which in fairness you might have to do on the six-hour drive between downtown LA and Palm Springs, where do you need to go for dinner?
2: Oh, okay. Uh, I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot on you. and I'm gonna give you my favorite. Not for I mean, I'd say dinner, but I don't think they're open for dinner. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, I'm I'm really a breakfast guy. And so there's a place uh, in Riverside, just downtown, called Simple Simons, and uh, they they bake all their own. So they make all their own breads. Uh, they make their own croissants. They make their own jams and jellies. And, uh, yeah. So, uh, they they also make their own, like they grind their own sausage. Like here. Yeah. It's so good. So, um, that is, that is hands down, uh, one of my favorite places, if not my favorite place, like I go there all the time. So, uh, absolutely, absolutely fantastic. But again, it's breakfast uh and i'll just schedule
1: your drive appropriately that's right
2: yeah well you know you just you just got to get up extra early and you know hit it on the way and i mean you can definitely get it for lunch so uh no no doubt about that but it's
1: absolutely amazing food that's awesome matt hey i've so appreciated your time and thank you so much i really appreciate it thanks for having me
0: this podcast is made possible by a partnership between modern campus and the evolution the modern campus engagement platform powers solutions for non-traditional student management, web content management, catalog and curriculum management, student engagement and development, conversational text messaging, career pathways, and campus maps and virtual tours. The result, innovative institutions can create learner-to-earner lifecycle that engages modern learners for life while providing modern administrators with the tools needed to streamline workflows and drive high efficiency. To learn more and to find out how to modernize your campus, visit moderncampus.com. That's moderncampus.com.